So often you think you know the right answer or you don't want to seem dumb. I have no problem seeming dumb because I, I, I will get to learn at the end of that. I think where most entrepreneurs, especially the thing about funding, need to be focused on is first and foremost, constantly talking to their customers and figuring out what their pain points are and how to solve for those. Because if they solve their customers' pain points, everything else will come. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard. If you listened last week, then you know that we're about to start part two of a two-episode interview with Bogdan Constantine of Voxy. Last week, we learned about Bogdan's background and first successful and exited startup. This week, we get to hear about how Voxy got started and the story behind their recent almost $7 million funding round. Bogdan also gives advice to founders looking to raise capital, tells his secrets of a killer investor pitch, and explains whether he believes that luck plays a role in success. Please subscribe to and rate the podcast wherever you listen. Visit pixelrecess.com to provide feedback and to learn about our work as a product and venture studio. At Pixel, we're partnering with amazing founders using technology at scale to address some of the world's biggest challenges. If you care about social impact and want to help fund it, or if you know of any remarkable companies in need of resources, please reach out to us at hello at pixelrecess.com. As always, thanks for listening. Team founder and CEO of Voxy. We're a conversational text marketing platform helping uh, consumer brands better connect with, learn from, and ultimately drive more revenue from their existing client bases all through AI-powered text messages that feel, look, and often act very human. So uh, do, you, do you enter Voxy with any kind of chip on your shoulder still? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, a ton of chips on my shoulder. So when I started the business, I instantly got people telling me this already exists. This already exists. And right. to this day, I hear that. Insert 20-year-old competitor that does nothing that we do, right. that you can't even reference, that already exists. So texting, that already exists. Aren't there like a million companies doing that? For a brief second, I was like, am I stupid? Was I just like Googling the wrong thing? Have there been like a million companies that could do this and I just couldn't find them? I would say one of my superpowers is finding and purchasing software or understanding the right solution for a need, not just for now, but in the future. So I was pretty cognizant that I'd been exhaustive in my search efforts and that I hadn't been able to find anything. I'd, I'd gone everywhere. I'd gone to YC. I'd cold emailed the partners at YC. Are you backing anything in this space? If you do, let me know. I'll be a first client. So what, it, what I realized is maybe I wasn't explaining it properly. And to this day, I still struggle to explain what Voxy does because it can be so many things to so many different businesses. But yeah, 100%. There are now people that are telling me that competitors are gonna get in your space and they're gonna kill you because they've raised X amount of money. So there's a lot that I want to prove. But fundamentally, what I also wanna do is teach and show businesses today have a problem. They like to talk at their customers with email, with billboards, with ads. They don't like to talk with their customers. And that is where all the learning comes. That's where you learn what Mark or Bogdan wants to buy, what they're actually interested in, why they're buying your product. You don't actually know the why behind anything. You're making assumptions based off lookalike audiences and fancy survey tools you bought on the internet. That's not the same as having detailed conversations, first person from your customers that tell you exactly the specifics. So that's what I wanted to do and build. And that's what I set up to power. And what I'm most proud of today is if I can get a company to try Boxy, Within two weeks, we've generated over 20x ROI for them, which is pretty crazy. We're a top three revenue stream, but even more so, we've got tens of thousands of data points that they never had before, that they've never collected before about their customers, who they are, what they do, why they're buying, all these different things that they can now use to 
be more effective, to make it a better product, to better make it a better experience, to actually iterate and not stagnate. That's a big part of it. So we're, and we're just getting started. I'll use a baseball analogy. We're not even in the first inning of what I think we're going to create. We're right. launching the ability to purchase directly in conversation or in text message now. We're launching the ability to refer friends and grow a top of funnel list all through our product. There's so much that we can create that we haven't yet. So there's a big chip on my shoulder because I haven't had the big exit. I haven't yeah. had the IPO and the billion dollar success story in Atlanta, which is why I moved back here. I love Atlanta. I grew up here. This is home for me. And I feel a deep sense of responsibility to help it thrive and grow because I think we've got everything we need here to be the ultimate startup hub. We should be rivaling the traditional startup hubs because we've got the talent, we've got the university systems, we've got the cost of living, the standard of living, and all of those things. It's a perfect ecosystem. And we've got airline connectivity, we've got Fortune 500s, you've got everything you need here. We just need one thing. We need more liquidity events to occur so we can get the ecosystem moving even faster. That's where the Bay Area, New York has beaten us. Is there's so much liquidity that occurs in that marketplace that flows back into the ecosystem. What happens with us is founders will take money from the West Coast or New York because of you know, a variety of reasons. And then when they have those liquidity events, the IPOs, the exits, et cetera, those folks pour money into their ecosystems, not back into ours, right. very sparingly. And that's what we've got to fix. I got this, by the way, from David Cummings. He espoused something very similar I've chosen to buy in on, which is this concept of we need more local heroes and we need more local wins here. Yep. And if we can do that's how we spur and grow our own ecosystem. That's why I moved uh -huh. back here. We'd both grown up here, my wife and I. And as I'm looking down on it, it was a no-brainer for my wife and I to move back to Atlanta because of all the intangibles that it had, not just being home, but the opportunity that was here. All right. So I relocated here, and that's actually where we started scaling the business. We went live with our first beta uh, product, June of 19, and originally built it for Bogdan, the enterprise buyer, and then COVID hit right. last March and rejiggered that a little bit. We had a pivot. We started working with more mid-market brands, franchise businesses, consumer businesses, e-commerce businesses, SMBs as well, our businesses that were getting walked by COVID and we could turn it around for them very quickly. And so we pivoted to where we help consumer facing businesses, whether they're SMB, mid-market or enterprise, connect with, learn from, and monetize their user bases. We still do enterprise. It's not as big as it was originally. One of my favorite clients here in Atlanta is the Castellucci Hospitality Group, Fred Castellucci. He's got Iberian Pig, Bar Mercado, Sugo. He's got seven restaurants, hundreds of employees, phenomenal experience. We started working with them when COVID first hit. We were able to drive dramatic growth for them by using our product within a couple of days. They were, they were seeing record level sales during a pandemic. That's what inspired us to say, okay, Enterprise is great, but they're not going to see this type of 180 degree flip that can turn their business around and appreciate it and bring those jobs back fast enough. When COVID yeah. was first hitting and we, we, we lost our office space and went all virtual, it became really apparent that we had a massive opportunity in SMB and mid-market. And that's what we started doubling down on. We grew a little over 600% last year, ended up raising our, our first round of, of, of financing. And that was all tied to yeah. uh, the growth that we experienced during COVID because of the businesses that we got to help that were realizing value. All right. Talk to me about how you thought through the funding cycle for this company. You wanted to be here. Yeah. You, pr you probably have opinions about where the money should come from. Walk us through how, how you thought through what you wanted that to become. And look, when we met, you were at the like one of the frustration moments where you were trying to figure that out exactly. And so talk through yeah. a little bit of that and then talk through what actually came together. Yeah, that's a great question. So what ended up happening, Mark, was we ended up growing and it became apparent towards the end of the year that if we wanted to continue sustaining our pace of growth, we were going to need to raise outside funding. We had capital. I'd put some in myself from my previous venture and things like that. 
but it was time to basically really to put the, the fuel of the fire, if you will. We were growing at such a great clip and I started talking to some very smart investors like John Allen Noro. And they started talking to me and it was like, you've got a governor throttle on the growth and that's your ability to hire people as quickly as you'd like, make investments in the right places, and really move at a much faster clip, especially because these clients are realizing true value. Along those same lines, we started getting a lot of interest from strategic investors. We started getting a lot of interest from West Coast firms, we started getting a lot of interest from thesis-driven firms around conversation, et cetera. And I ended up deciding in October that, hey, we're going to go ahead and fundraise and we're going to find the right partner for us. So every investor says they've got value-additive services, but often I think that the rub on a lot of them is it's just money and then people on the board. Not all of them, but a lot of the more traditional folks. Yeah. And I started talking to Noro pretty deeply. I built a great relationship with John and Elizabeth there at Noro and obviously Alan Tatel I'd known for a while. And I basically just posited to them, how do we build a world-class company, like a company that has insane trajectory? How do we build that together by bringing ridiculously smart people here, operators, people that have been in the trenches, that have been where I want to go, that can help educate me and help educate our team to go faster. And to their credit, they did a phenomenal job of activating their network, both of LPs and of folks that they've worked with in the past. So very quickly, I got reconnected to Wayne Kellum, who's a phenomenal guy. He's a rock star in the SaaS world. He's been the CEO of more companies that I can count, all with wonderful outcomes. And I'd known him for a couple of years and it became apparent that Wayne wanted to get involved. So he, as part of that value additive service, Noro, to their credit, basically said, hey, we'd be interested in taking the whole round, but we think what makes the most sense, Bogdan, is if we take less and make strategic room for some wonderful folks uh, that we think could be helpful. Wayne introduced me to Andy Powell, who's the CEO of Call Rail. At that point, it became apparent, hey, we've got a lot of Atlanta folks that are getting involved. And I have this thesis that if we get more exits in Atlanta, what, what happens? And then very quickly, obviously, David from Atlanta Ventures got involved as well. Tom Noonan from ISS. And then Kyle Porter, also, we, we got connected through a number of mutual acquaintances. He ended up turning our board from Sales Loft. And then actually Fred Castellucci from Castellucci Hospitality Group came in. And then a, a gentleman that, that had been really helpful to me, who was one of my favorite investors in town, Mike Dowdle from Circadian came in as well. He's got one of the best early stage seed portfolios out, does a great job. And they were all just by happenstance, happened to be in Atlanta and they had theses on investing more in Atlanta, growing the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And at this point, this was basically a term sheet. Noro has a lead and all these value added folks and then we had funds that wanted to take the whole round from the West Coast, from the Midwest, and one from the Northeast. And we ended up actually having more than this handful of term sheets, folks that were interested. And I was weighing them and I built a spreadsheet with our director of finance, Adam, and we're trying to figure all this out. And I kept going back to, there's not a better deal than this one because not only are they bringing world-class operators to the board and that can really help us, but we're aligned on that vision of, of scaling and growing kind of the Atlanta ecosystem. But also they've all built massive MarTech businesses. So I can learn so much from them. Not only are they going to inject capital in the business, which we need right, to execute our mission, but I can bug the heck out of them. David built a phenomenal business. Andy built a phenomenal business. Kyle built a phenomenal business. Wayne has built phenomenal businesses in mm -hmm. telecommunications and marketing. I, I basically am going to have a masterclass of people that I can bug the heck out of and they can give me recommendations, things to do. And the cool thing is, I spend a good bit of time with them. They're not the types of people that are going to mandate certain things. They're, they love to give recommendations based on their viewpoints. And that has been extremely helpful. So we've got a phenomenal board. And now, because they're all operators, they can help me recruit too. So one of the big value adds was they all had folks in network that they'd worked with in the past. 
So we hired a world-class chief technology officer, Alex Apetis, who is a rock star. Lance Weatherby, our head of marketing. Mike Basser, our chief sales officer. Because of the strength of the board and the relationships they had, I was able to get introduced to not just proven world-class executives, but people that I aligned with fundamentally on, on how I view the world, the type of business that I want to build culturally. It was like a perfect storm, if you will. Uh, and I didn't set it out to be that way. Originally, it was one venture <laughs> coming in Atlanta right. and me throwing one random thing out and two to John and Alan and Elizabeth's credit. They, they took it and ran with it. Let's put together just a, a, a dream team of MarTech investors and operators that can help Foxy. Because to, the, to their credit, I'm convinced that we've got a billion dollar business, but they saw that as soon as they started looking at the numbers and they sure. started looking at the customers and what we were doing with limited resources. And to, to their point, it's been proven true. All right, I got a few questions related to that. First of all, what raises the money? I, I, right before I hopped on with you, I was on LinkedIn and there was a see the deck that so-and-so used to raise $40 million. As if, the deck, deck. as if the deck raised the money, right? Like the deck, no. oh, they saw that deck and then they were... And then they were in. Did, did you raise the money? Did the deck raise the money? Did the business raise the money? How do you yeah. think about that? Great question. If, if I showed you my deck or the deck I had then with, with limited design resources, you would laugh me out of a lot of rooms. My, my deck was not very good. It's kind of almost like a point of embarrassment for me. No, what raised the money was really two things. It was obviously the strength of the entrepreneur and the founding team. I had an exit. I was very bullish on what I was building and I had a very clearly defined view of where I wanted to go. And secondly, customers were validating that what we built was not only valuable, but it was invaluable. You often in SaaS have this thing of, is it a painkiller or an actual antidote? Sure. And we, it became apparent because I built this for Bogdan, the enterprise buyer that, that couldn't find the solution, had an antidote to a really big problem that I just happened to be the first to market with in terms of realizing it because I was just a little bit ahead of the curve. So they saw that, they did customer interviews, they talked to a bunch of our customers. And as that was happening, we were still growing. NRR was over 100%. ARR was growing at a at, you know a double-digit clip every single month. So as we were going through diligence and as they're seeing this, they see the growth. And it was, one, Bogdan has a very compelling vision of the future that he keeps reiterating. And two, customers have bought in and they're seeing the value of that vision in terms of true ROI for their own businesses. The churn is low and, they're, uh, and they really believe. So those two things I think together married it. So really it was the story validated by fact. I could have had no deck looking back now. And if I'd had our QuickBooks export or our PL and our balance sheet, and then our customer list with contact information, that would probably would have been enough. Knowing what I know now, I'm sure they would have done much more diligence and asked me a lot more questions. But to an extent, that's what they needed to see. Happy customers seeing value and growth coming. And at that point, I was spending no money on marketing. I was the only seller still. And it was overwhelmingly inbound demand. So to put those in perspective, that's what they saw. They saw a really sticky product that was working. The deck could not have been a deck. Right. I think Parker Conrad over at Rippling at one point doesn't even do decks. I think he does memos, right? Where it's like a thesis or a memo. I probably could have done one of those, but that's more running than I would have cared to do at that time. As only seller. But I don't think it's the deck at all. I think that that's a byproduct of the success that the deck is capturing. It could be a BI dashboard, Tableau or whatever of revenues or a Stripe dashboard. It's whatever most clearly shows one thing, and that's the advice I would give early stage entrepreneurs. Up and to the right, whatever those metrics are, investors need certainty and clarity that you've built something valuable that customers want and that you can repeat. And in my case, I was showing them I'm not a very good salesperson and people are coming to me and I can be passionate about what we're building and they'll buy. Imagine what happens when we've got a, a, a robust sales organization, a robust marketing organization. The product is great, 
we need to we can continue improving it. But that's really what would move the needle was the up and to the right. I just did a tie event a couple of days ago where I got to give some feedback to early stage entrepreneurs who don't have a product, who don't have traction. And my first thing was get 10 customers to buy something to show that they believe in you and that what you're building, even right. if it's a proof and, of concept. And to pay. Yes, to actually pay. It can be $5. Just it something. can be whatever you want. Show them that they're willing to pay because there's a pain point. And then from there, take those 10. And I'm sure that they each have four friends. So now you're at 50. And those people probably have four friends each. So now you're at 250. Even if all you do is just mine those networks, you can at least get 100 customers. And if you can get 100 customers for something, I'm convinced, unless it's very niche, you can get 1,000. And if you can get 1,000, what's stopping you from 10,000? All right, so you did it, right? It's very hard to raise money in a way. It's something that a lot of people try to do and aren't necessarily successful at. The published number was something like almost $7 million. At that point, you're done, right? That was the, that's the big yeah. accomplishment. No. So you're good. You're good. That's it. That's the dream. That's funny. I think my wife and family members, we closed right around the holidays. I think that's what they thought was going to happen. And then I would take like a week off and enjoy the holidays. And it was the exact opposite. Once I got the, the, the certainly the check was in the bank, the SUB had collected our funds. I immediately got to work tweaking the model. I started putting job postings out. I pinged our, our executives, Kelsey, Mikhail, uh, uh, and a number of other folks and said, hey, go ahead and put job postings out. I need them out tonight. I want to start interviewing candidates in the morning. That right. was a milestone. I think a lot of times people get caught up in that the fundraise is the win. Don't forget, you now have new expectations, a yeah. new board, right? New investors that you want to that, that you want to help see succeed, that want to get involved in the business. So it's just a new stage. But at that new stage, you've got to reset everything. New expectations, and you're adding the management team, you're adding the employees. But for me, it was the exact opposite. As soon as that money came through, I was like, all right, I now have to start executing. I know what I got to do. And, and you talk about chip on your shoulder, you asked that question earlier. For the longest time, it had felt like, hey, I'm talking this big talk, and hopefully I can back it up. Now I had resources, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And I, we've been fortunate. We're growing really nicely. At this point, we, we doubled ARR Q1. We're trending in the, in the right direction in a variety of different ways. As then we hope that those trends continue. But a big part of that is we're proving that, hey, with the investment, we can exit. I think it's credited to Mark Cuban now, but that quote about raising money is not an accomplishment, it's an obligation. Yes, that's very true. I don't know that I feel that it's an obligation because I view our investors are my partner. They believed in what we're building. They believed in me and Voxy. And they believe so much, they took money out of their hard-earned pockets or their LPs pockets, and they, and they put it in Voxy because they see it as a great steward of that capital. So I feel a great sense of responsibility to the pension funds and all the people that put money in with the expectation to get a return. Obviously, it's a diversified asset class, but I want to get that. I want our stakeholders to do quite well. I want our employees who are, are overwhelmingly involved in the business from, from that equity standpoint to do quite well as well. And ultimately, I want our customers to do the most well because they're actually talking to their customers and building those relationships that they can monetize. Look, you have no problems with bravado and <laughs> you're a confident fella and you can go into a whole lot of rooms where you're in that room for some governed amount of time and handle that. One of the great opportunities of the dynamics you just mentioned is that you're surrounded by in certain ways, far more accomplished people than you, and, and far people, more accomplished, and, people. and people who have accomplished far more in in specifically what you are trying to accomplish. How do you not have imposter syndrome sitting in those rooms now when it's supposed to be the thing you're running? That's a really good question. I thought about that for about like thirty minutes as soon as I took the round, and I was like, "Huh, 
these people are really smart and they're like way smarter than me. And they've screwed up more than I have, all those things, but they have the experience. And it would be really easy, full disclosure, to say that I become an order taker, et cetera. But to the board's credit, they have put an unbelievable amount of trust in me as being the expert. While they might know business and they might know their businesses better, they don't know Voxy as well as I do. Nobody knows my business better than me. So I come to any meeting with a certain level of expertise because I'm in my business every day. I know the challenges, I know the unique constraints. For example, one of our suppliers just did a big acquisition yesterday and I had a write-up that I sent out this morning prepared for any questions that might come up, ready to have that dialogue. Why? Because I know my business inside and out and I live, eat, sleep, breathe, think about my business all the time. They don't do that. They think about the business a good bit, but not to the same level of obsession that I do. So to that point, I come with that viewpoint to these meetings. What I need from them is strategic level, like what should I be worried about? You've been in this type of situation where this player, this thing, that thing happened, and they're giving me their experiences, but those are again experiences off limited data points of past experiences, often they're right. In particular, Wayne has a ton of those, but they constantly remind me, Bogdan, this is just what we think. You ultimately are the CEO, you run the business. We're here to be your sounding board and your helper, but we're not here to tell you how to run the business. That's so invaluable. The one thing that I would optimize for from an early stage founder raising is that right there, finding people that have that mentality. Because often you'll find folks that want to delegate every aspect of the business and tell you what to do. And that is not conducive or healthy because they're not in the business, you are, and it causes a lot of possibly poor decision-making. Back to the imposter syndrome, they know their businesses really well, I know mine, and I view them very much not as my boss or somebody that's done more than me. They're obviously more accomplished, but it's a partner that I can learn from. I I approach it with the same tenacity as I did when I was a 12-person startup pitching target. We know what we're doing, we've got the best product, you just need to experience it. And that's the big upside and opportunity. Obviously you're a hard worker. In fact, it's part of what you would consider a superpower or like a core value that you're going to outwork anyone. When you look back, everything that's happened so far and what you think will happen going forward, how much of it was outworking and to what extent was there luck? And obviously I'm sure you believe that you create your own luck, but honestly, how much of it were things beyond your control? I love this question, Mark. Obviously, it's a really powerful one. I didn't tell you how I got to the United States, which is a funny story. So there's a diversity green card lottery. I don't know if you've heard of it. But every year, the United States has deemed that there are certain underrepresented countries that they don't have enough of in the United States. Romania is one of those countries. So every year, they assign 10,000 visas that you can apply for that will give you uh, effectively a green card to come here. And you can get the green card for six months, 10 years, or forever. So we applied in 96 and over 15 million people apply. Just to put it in perspective, Romania as a country has like a little over 24 million people. It's like the lottery, right? It is, you're not winning hundred million dollars, but you're winning a chance to change your stars. So we won in 96 with with the ability to get there in 97, but you can't just show up. You have to find someone to sponsor you. So my dad's uncle had gone to college with the woman that had fled during communism and ended up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And he still had her number somehow and was able to get a hold of her and she agreed to sponsor us. Otherwise you you don't get to come here. And then when you show up, you don't know if you're gonna be here for six months, 10 years or forever. They don't tell you until you go through immigration at your port of entry. And so do you sell your house? Do you sell your belongings? If you're only here for six months, what do you do? And when we got here, the majority of folks, about 50% of people get like a six month at that time. I don't know if it's changed now. 
and about 45% got the 10 year, which was enough time to submit for citizenship and 5% got the lifetime. And we got the lifetime visa or the lifetime green card. And obviously I'm a citizen and all that stuff now. So it's really difficult, this question, because I have this weird experience of how I'm here. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have these opportunities. I should be in Eastern Europe or something. Who knows where I would otherwise be without this concept of luck. And if I had just grown up here and been bogged in or not bogged in a different name and grown up in Gwinnett County, Georgia, I'd probably have a very different viewpoint on this. But I think luck is such an important part of the journey because it's tied to timing, right? If I'd started Voxy five years ago, we wouldn't be as successful as we are today because it wasn't the right time. Or five years later, and there would be 10,000 of them and it'd be the stupid idea. How much is luck and how much is hard work? I will not be outworked by anyone. I will beat anyone to work. And what that means is when there are opportunities, I jump on them first. I'm always open to opportunities. When my competitors or, 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 somebody, or somebody else is sleeping, I'm awake and I'm going to jump on that opportunity. I'm going to take it because I might not get another one. So to use the analogy of the, the, if the door is open, what, what do you do? You walk through it. But what if the door isn't open? I will sit there and bang on the door until it opens. So I think a big part of my mentality or viewpoint is you have to recognize luck, which is an opportunity and jump on it and hang on for dear life. I would say traditionally speaking, 90% of it has been luck because I'm here, right? And I shouldn't be. But that other 10% is an endless amount of hard work. Uh, you will not outwork me because I refuse to quit. And that comes from my life experiences, seeing my parents and the struggles they, they went through to get to that point. But that first 90%, I think it's got to be luck. I'm fortunate to be living in the United States in an era of internet where you can create from nothing in the Western world, in a democracy. My parents have all kinds of stories of when, I, when I, my mom was pregnant with me, she'd have cravings for sugar and you would only be allocated a cup of sugar a week. And my dad would wait 10 hours in line and then try to haggle other people to buy their sugar to give to my mom. So you, you factor that in where I could have been and where I am, luck has to be such a big part of it. And I'm fortunate for that. But also to my parents' point for recognizing that an opportunity occurred and jumping on it. That's a weird way to answer your question, but I, I couldn't not bring up that story. No, it's good. It's a big part of it. It's good to have that kind of global perspective, right? We're not a society that that likes to say that anything is due to anything other than my specific choices and my specific hard work. And we're the first society, frankly, to believe that. And it doesn't particularly mesh well with reality. You just spoke about opportunity. We're involved in a very uh, deep and painful and national discussion around access to opportunity, access for founders to opportunity, that, that whatever genius you have in you, you probably would have had in you in another country in much you know worse circumstances. That genius exists all over the place and doesn't get those opportunities. And now you've been given a big chunk of money and a business that's growing like crazy. And you happen to be in Atlanta where the seat of the civil rights movement was. How do you think about what you, cause, cause you look like a white guy. So you uh, know, uh, how do you think about diversity going forward and in, in the way you build this company? I love this question. So right now, because of COVID and everything that's happened, everybody's remote. We don't have an office again. We met when we had an office. We're not back into an office. When we go back, it'll be a collaboration area, one or two days a week by team. Everybody's insanely productive working remotely. We've invested in great setups. We give them stipends to trick out their desks and their workspaces, et cetera. My thesis is that talent is universal. Opportunity is not. Because you're right, I would have been just as hardworking in the Western side of Romania as I am here, possibly, but I'm not because I'm here. I got lucky 
and I get to be here and I get to access great capital pools and great talent pools and I've afforded these opportunities that others are not. So what we've started doing is when we have our job recs and they say remote, we really mean that. And what I mean by that is we won't just look within the United States, we'll look for the best possible candidate. One of our core values is we want to create a workspace of excellence. So what I mean by that is A plus players. Only the best of the best get to work at Voxy. And I'm being serious. We put them through the ringer uh, to find only truly exceptional people that we can learn from, grow with, that can really move the needle for our business. And what we started seeing is that for specific roles, maybe that wasn't always in the United States. We, we started hiring what I'd call 10X developers left and right. None of them are in the United States. Why? Because they're stuck in some insert second or third world country and they don't get the right visa permissions to leave. But they have the knowledge, the skill set, the hunger the work ethic, these guys work as hard as I do because they want to grow. They want to provide for their families. They want to do the same things that I wanted to do. So we started hiring and that's been one of the most enjoyable things that I've gotten to do as an entrepreneur on this journey is bring people like that on. We will sponsor H1B visas. We just did for one of our, one of our marketing folks that come here on a, on an educational visa to get their masters, but even more so past that we're constantly trying to make sure we're thinking about diversity of thought people that have different experiences than our own. So having people that grew up impoverished, having people that grew up in great wealth and seeing how those two come together. I, I want to give a credit to all of our leaders, my executive leadership team. That's a big mandate for us. And they've all done a phenomenal job of finding extremely diverse. We're less than hundred people. We're growing. We'll be over that in, in, in the near term, but we have done a really nice job of, of hiring a diverse list of candidates, but am I happy with it? No. Can we do more? Yes. But the caveat has to be, they have to be excellent. So whether or not they're here or whether they're in, in Latin America or they're in Eastern Europe or, or Eastern Asia, it doesn't matter so long as they're excellent in everything they do. And they also fit our core values, which our first value is integrity. And we put them through all kinds of interview questions and tests to find out, are you going to be, a, are you a good person? Are you there for people that need you? Do you go above and beyond for in everything that you do? And or do you have a good heart? And we, we scream that as part of that integrity value. Uh, and we, we do that over and over again. You're, you get to impact decisions, your voice matters. And because we have so little bureaucracy, you have impact from almost day one. So that's what we're looking for. And that's those are the people we hire. And we're gonna treat them all the same with respect, integrity, and trust. Hustle is very much about now. Like yes. it, re it requires you to be very present in the moment you don't do a lot of dreaming necessarily often with hustle it's producing outcomes as quickly as possible for needs that exist yes. and entrepreneurship feels like that often do you think about legacy at all do you think about a long term at all related to you and your life and what yeah. you're trying to accomplish and what you want to be remembered for that's a great question mark i do and you're spot on hustle is the, the here and now i gotta fire i gotta put out i gotta focus on this thing it's really urgent how do I do it quickly? You had a big opportunity for tomorrow. It's often hard when you're in the forest and you're looking at this massive tree to understand where you fit in. And I would say that's probably one of my superpowers as well. My wife gets mad at me all the time for this, but I can zoom out so much that I may be not even on planet earth anymore in terms of seeing the big picture and understanding how things fit together. When I do those runs, that's often what I'm doing is mapping out what the next couple of years, what the next five, 10, even 20 years, could and would look like and should look like based on what I know today and what I want to have happen today. Going back to McConaughey, what is 15 years from now Bogdan going to look like? What does he expect and what do I need to do to get there? So I'm often thinking about that. 
And even now, I think some of our executives might get frustrated with me because I'm already a year ahead in my head of where the business is and what those challenges might be and how we get ready for them. Even though I'll obviously get dragged into the here and now quite often as well. But I'm constantly thinking about the long term. Not, not just for myself, my family, my business. Where do we want Voxy to end up? What does that need to look like? And what, what are the steps today, the baby steps that get me there? Often what people think is it's big decisions that, that get you to that long-term roadmap. It's not. It's little decisions. It's choosing to prioritize exercising or not drinking soda for me or whatever it may be. It's those little things that add up to monumental decisions. Kyle Porter told me this, one of our board from Sales Off. He said, Warren Buffett said, compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And I think people often assume that's just for financial stuff. It's not. It's anything that you put just a little bit of effort to over and over again. What does it look like in a year, two years, 20 years? That's what I'm always thinking about. The little things move the needle dramatically long term out. All right. Is there anything else you wish you would have said, you want to have said? I love this podcast. Thank you for having me on. This is awesome, Mark. I love helping entrepreneurs. And I would say that the biggest thing that entrepreneurs don't do today, that one inspired this company is, it's really two things, but it's tied to one thing, not talking to their customers. And because of that, they lack empathy for the customer problem. Unless they're solving the exact problem for themselves that their customer had, they're going to miss the mark just a bit. And including customers, prospective customers, and over-talking and over-communicating with them is key. So often you think you know the right answer or you don't want to seem dumb. I have no problem seeming dumb, right? Because I, I, I will get to learn at the end of that. And that's a big part of it for me. But I think where most entrepreneurs, especially the thing about funding, all these things need to be focused on is first and foremost, constantly talking to their customers and figuring out what their pain points are and how to solve for those. Because if they solve their customers' pain points and their customers are paying them for them, then the investment, the success, everything else will come.